I always hate ending the greeting time because it's always a, a joy and privilege to just stand up here and to observe and just to see the conversations, the joy, the smiles, the laughs of everything going on and, and out there. So um, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. John chapter 5. And as you're turning there, maybe you're there already, let's, let's open um, with prayer to the Lord. Father, we pray for our time together. Lord, I pray that uh, just through the reading of Your Word, the examination of Your Word, um, that you, the Holy Spirit can give us wisdom, can give us eyes to see and ears to hear Your truth of who You are, Jesus, the love that You showed us. So I pray for wisdom and boldness for myself as I preach Your Word. I pray, Lord, that Your truth rings true and that You're proclaimed here, You're glorified here this morning. I pray that I get out of the way. And it's in your precious name we pray this in Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Josh, for sharing. That was amazing testimony. It's just the power of prayer and, and, and really God's sovereignty and the power of the gospel, uh, which is where we've been, what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks as we looked at the, the story of the woman at the well. The power's not in her testimony, but rather who she's testifying about, which is what? Jesus Christ. So we're continuing through John's gospel. Before I begin, I want to say this. I don't have any sort of first-hand or special knowledge of being inside a courtroom. I don't. All, all, all the knowledge I have of, of a court is what I see on TV, which may or may not be completely accurate. Right? And I was going to share a whole story of how I got out of jury duty, because I was supposed to have jury duty quite a few years ago. Um, I didn't lie. There was, no, there was nothing, no fibs there. It was just God somehow said, I don't want you to serve. And I said, oh, this is amazing. Praise God. I was praying not to. But that's a whole different story for another time. Um, when it comes to courtrooms, at least on TV, and if anybody's been there, you can give me a, you can raise your hand and correct me, maybe, maybe after service. But there's always this one phrase when they call someone up to the stand and they say something like this. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Usually they'll have their hand on the Bible, they'll say, raise your right hand, and what you're doing is you're taking an oath or a promise or declaration that you are not going to lie, that you are not going to what? Bear false witness. And when it comes to witnesses, especially in courtrooms and in trials, they're important. Witnesses can either make or break a case. A lot of times, if you're a witness called to take the stand, you'll get coached on how to talk and what to say and, and how to use your words in, in a way that is good. Now, verdicts, sentences, and executions have been carried out, some of them all because of witness testimonies. The Bible itself even talks a lot about the power and the importance of witnesses. I don't know if you know about this. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's a, a law that says a single witness is not sufficient to bring a charge against somebody. What that means is if somebody brings a charge against you and it's one person accusing you of something, in the eyes of the Old Testament law, that wasn't good enough. You needed at least two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy 17, again, it says on the evidence, on the story of agreeing a story of two or three witnesses, even capital punishment, the death sentence, can be carried out. And this is why even in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, God instructs the Israelites, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now when we teach it to kids or students or whatever, we, we always summarize it, do not lie. 
right? And that's accurate. But what they're saying is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, Paul says that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, do not admit a charge, don't bring an accusation against an elder of the church except if you have the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right, so this number, two or three witnesses, comes up over and over in Old Testament and in New Testament. And this morning, we're going to be looking and continuing to see Jesus is having a dialogue. Jesus is having a, a, a discussion with the people. He's getting questioned. He's not in any sort of official courtroom. He's not on trial. Yet, he's going to make a defense against the Jews about who he claims to be. And if we read through these verses this morning with the eyes or the lens of looking at it through a courtroom-type setting, it might be easier for us to understand what Jesus is doing. Now, last week, I know a lot of us weren't here because of the flash flood warning, and I uploaded it on, online a few days later than I usually do the sermon. But we looked at a claim that Jesus made, a very important, a very controversial claim according to the Jewish leaders here. Jesus made a claim and this week we're going to be seeing Jesus is going to now call not two, not three, but five witnesses to take the stand to back up his truth claim. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 5, verse 30. And we're going to read this one verse, and then we're going to bounce back to a little bit of last week's sermon as a recap, because we're going to see what Jesus claimed. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If you like to fill in the blanks in your notes, you can. The first one is this. Jesus' claim, what he claimed last week in the previous verses, is equality with God. He puts himself on the same authoritative level of God the Father himself. He claims to be God. Last week, we looked at several key themes or several key claims that Jesus did. If you backtrack, in John chapter 5, the beginning of it starts with Jesus healing a man who is invalid, a man whose legs did not work for 38 years. And the Jews are outraged because not of what Jesus did healing the man, but rather the day he did it on, which was the Sabbath day. In their eyes, Jesus was breaking the man-made Sabbath laws. Not the God-ordained ones, that's important, the man-made Sabbath laws. And then because of that, in verse 17, Jesus starts his first claim to be God. He says this. In verse 17, he says, if God doesn't take a day off, if God doesn't take a Sabbath, then neither do I. If God is constantly sustaining, upholding, and, and he's at work through his creation all the time without a single minute or second off, Jesus says, then neither am I. It's a direct comparison that Jesus is making of who he is. And it says it in the next verse, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he broke the Sabbath, not only because he claimed God to be his own father, his own father, but what? He was making himself equal with God. So last week we talked a lot about the Trinity. There's a lot of mystery when it comes to the Trinity. But we see here Jesus from their verses last week he, he pulls back the curtain and can see the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Right? God is three persons, but what? One being. Total unity. One nature. 
In verse 19 last week, Jesus says, and this is my paraphrase, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is not a lone wolf. Jesus doesn't act on His own way, but rather what? In perfect unity. In in a perfect what? Oneness with the Father. The next thing we looked at was in verse 21, as God is the giver of life, Jesus claims that the Son is the giver of life. That the Son gives life to all, all whom He pleases. And as Christians, we know that to be what? Eternal life. In verse 22 of chapter 5, the Father has given the Son the authority to execute judgment. And on Wednesday, I said something. I said a comment. I don't know if it was clear or not. But in order for God to give anyone who's less than Him the authority to judge the world, that would make Him a really bad God. But Jesus being equal on the same playing field, the same being God, the Son, has the power and the authority to execute judgment, to judge the world. And then also we looked at the most important, I think, from last week, was in verse 22. It's as the Father receives honor, as the Father receives worship and glory and praise, Jesus says, so does the Son. Any good prophet from the Lord, would never receive worship or honor. Why? Because they're stealing it. They're stealing glory away from God, who He alone is worthy of it all. And here we have Jesus, and we'll see Him throughout the Gospels, receive glory, receive worship, receive praise as God. And the main point of Jesus is that He is equal to God the Father. That Jesus acts in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, with perfect oneness with the Father, Because He is God. They have the same nature. Now in verse 30, Jesus once again makes that harmony, makes that claim of oneness with God the Father. He says this, I can do nothing of my own. Right? And there's two ways to look at that. Some people might say, well see right there, look Jesus, that means He's less than God. He's inferior to God. He can't do anything by Himself. It doesn't talk about him being any inferior to God the Father, but rather it talks about the unity of will and action. As I mentioned before, Jesus never acts as a lone wolf. He never acts as a wild card. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a team sport and you've made a plan for a play, a specific play, and if, no one, if one person breaks what they're not supposed to do and doesn't go according to that play, what, the, the play collapses. They're, they're known as a wild card. They, they're not trustworthy. Right? They acted on their own will. They acted outside what was agreed on, the unity of the team. And here we see Jesus, when it comes to his relationship with God the Father, God the Son is not a lone wolf. Perfect unity. He never goes his own way. He never does anything that is in not in total agreement with the Father. And if we continue with just this one verse, verse 30, right? This is our our recap from last week, but it's going to bounce us forward into now what Jesus is going to talk about. He says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus' judgment is just, because He doesn't judge according to any sort of specific or selfish desire that He might have, but rather it's in perfect unity with the will of the Father. And last week I said that Jesus as judge never has any disagreements with God the Father. It's not like Jesus makes a decision and says, okay, uh, 
Josh, I'm going to give you eternal life. Here's, here's, your, here's eternal life. And then it's not like God saying, like, Jesus, do you really want to give Josh eternal life? Does Josh really deserve it? Does, well, I mean, does that, do any of us really deserve it? But for the point of the analogy, right, there's no disagreement between God the Son and God the Father. They're, they're perfectly one. One being, God. And I don't know if you caught this one word here, but it says Jesus' judgment is what? Just. Jesus' judgment is just. What this means is that no one will be ripped off, nobody will be robbed on the day of judgment. That Jesus judges us fairly, justly, in complete and total unity with the Father according to His Word. Those who have put their faith in Jesus will receive eternal life in heaven. That's the promise revealed in Scripture. And on the flip side, the promise revealed in Scripture for those who don't put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll be judged and receive eternal death in a real physical place called hell. There are no tricks or hidden messages when it comes to Jesus' judgment. There's no little fine print that, you, that you're like, what does that say? I can't really read that. There's, there's nothing like that. He is clear on what basis He will judge us, and His judgment is just. Now to Christians, as we talked about last week, we delight in that. We're encouraged by that. And as unbelievers, the flip side, that should scare and terrify non-believers. Again, Jesus, in this one verse, summarizes everything He's mentioned in the previous verses. He's making a direct comparison between Himself and God the Father. His claim is that He is God. Jesus, in His perfect wisdom, His perfect knowing of the hearts of men, and even knowing the law of God, He now calls several witnesses to take the stand, to testify, and to back up this truth claim that He made. And even by doing this, Jesus is silencing His accusers even before they ask Him a question or make any sort of claim. Right? His accusers want Him dead. Why? Because He claims to be God. He's going to be obedient to the law of God. And again, he's not calling one or two or three witnesses, which two or three would be what? Legal in the sense of the law. But he's calling five witnesses to take the stand. And then in point number two in your notes, we're going to see Jesus' witnesses. Jesus' witnesses. In verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Remember, in Old Testament law, you need at least two witnesses to back up a testimony. Jesus is not saying that he can't be trusted. He's not saying that he's not trustworthy. But rather, he's saying according to the law, in all legal sense, his testimony wouldn't hold up in a court of law. It's not valid or acceptable. Because if he alone bears witness, there's not two or three witnesses. It's not acceptable. There's insufficient evidence without witnesses. And now in verse 32, he starts. Verse 32, there's another one who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And we'll come back to this verse later because it's talking about God the Father. But for now, letter A, the first witness that Jesus calls to take the stand is going to be John the Baptist. Verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. If you remember, we talked about John the Baptist for a week, and we also looked back a few weeks later at his testimony, at who he was. But if you remember, in John chapter 1, for the Jews, 
there's been 400 years of silence. From their perspective, right, God is always working. We know that. But from the Jews' perspective, for 400 years, it seemingly looks as if God's been doing nothing. There's been silence. No prophets since the Old Testament. 400 years. Then comes John the baptizer. His birth was miraculous. An angel appeared, and this is a little bit of a recap. An angel appears to John's father right before he's born, Zechariah, and he tells Zechariah that both he and his wife Elizabeth, who despite being old and despite Elizabeth being barren, which points us back to what? Abraham and Sarah, right? A lot of similarities there. Despite their age and their barrenness, or if that's a word, they would have a child. There's a child promised. They shall call his name John, and the angel reveals John's purpose, that he'll make ready the Lord for the, uh, the Lord a people prepared. He'll turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. John came to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He came and fulfilled prophecy that's found in Isaiah. John's ministry caused such an excitement amongst the people. He was popular. He was famous. Why? Because for 400 years there was nothing. And now suddenly a man is coming. Right? A prophet is now speaking the words of God. 400 years is now broken by John the Baptist. He's famous. He's popular. God's speaking through him. He's doing the Lord's work. If you remember from John 1, the people thought that maybe John could be this Messiah that we're waiting for. And he's asked this multiple times, and every time he clearly rejects the idea that he's the Messiah. He simply said that his mission is to make the way for the Messiah, to prepare the road. In, in my words, to roll out the red carpet and let the Messiah be the center of attention. It's all about him. John's ministry was always meant to be second place to the Messiah. He was always meant to what? Fade away, go back into the darkness, right? And let the Messiah shine in the light. And he knew that. We looked at his humility later in John's Gospel. John says, or Jesus says, that John was a burning and a shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Many people loved John the Baptist, but because of things that he was doing and proclaiming, many Jewish leaders hated John the Baptist. Jesus compares John to a lamp. A lamp is not a source of light, but rather one that reflects or gives light that's given to it. John's lamp was shining and burning bright. The people were drawn to him, but only for a short time. And again, John's ministry clashed with the Jewish leaders. He was calling for personal repentance. He was calling out the nation of Israel and their hypocrisy. He was baptizing Jews, which Jewish people, you wouldn't do that. You only, you only baptize the Gentile converts into Judaism. Again, the people... He was loved, he was hated, but the people overall in general, the common people rejoiced in John, but only for a short time. There's a quote from one pastor saying that John's ministry and the people's love of him was like children playing outside while the sun is shining. But once it gets dark, they run back home. Right? For a time, they're rejoicing in his light, they're rejoicing in his message, but when it gets dark, they go away. Many thrill-seekers were temporarily attracted to John's ministry, but ultimately, many of them missed the purpose. The, he, was the, he pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. If you remember in John 1, he literally looked at 
Jesus, points to Jesus and says, what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not like he was talking metaphorically or symbolically, but he was talking physically. Look, there he is. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. That's him. And we do know that some of his uh, his, his disciples, they went to Jesus and became Jesus' disciples. But then in John chapter 2, we're also revealed that some of John's disciples stayed with him. The, the message seemingly went in one ear and out the other. They were so in love with John's ministry that they didn't care about Jesus. They saw Jesus' ministry as what? Conflict. As competition. And that's where John has this quote, you know, I, I must decrease for he must increase. Right? He's always meant to fizzle out to what? Make way for the Messiah. So Jesus' first witness, a man named John, who directly told the people, it wasn't secretive, it wasn't symbolic, but literally pointed Here's your Messiah. Behold the Lamb. He was the Lamb that God prepared for His anointed one. And it's interesting because there's a direct correlation in Psalm 132, verse 17, where it says that God will prepare a lamp for His anointed one. I, I, I love the imagery here that Jesus uses, a, a burning and shining lamp. Right? There's prophecy being fulfilled in John the Baptist. That's witness number one. Witness number two, we'll keep going along here. Jesus calls His miracles to take the stand, or his mighty works. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All the works, all the miracles that Jesus is doing, it bears witness that Jesus is sent from God the Father. <clears throat> Throughout the Bible, Miracles were given, what? To authenticate a message that's sent from God. It was to authenticate. One of the things to make sure if an apostle was true or not was what? Miracles. To prove that they're from God. Another was that their word is in a complete alignment with God's word. In John chapter 3, it's interesting because there's a lot of evidence here. And, and, and we see Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. right? Jesus called, He's a teacher of Israel. He's a popular guy. He's a, most, he's a very knowledgeable Pharisee. Nicodemus says, we know, Jesus, that you are a teacher sent from God. And why does he say that? He says, no one can do these signs. No one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So you have Nicodemus being honest with Jesus. You have to be sent from God because who else can do all these miracles? In John chapter 7, the people are even more divided on who Jesus is. In John 7.31, the people say, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man, Jesus, has done? And it's a little bit of a sarcastic question because Jesus has done many miracles. And they're saying, is it even possible for the Messiah to do more miracles than this man, Jesus, has been doing? A little later in John's Gospel, John 11, it says, So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered to the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs, many miracles. In Acts 2, verse 22, at Peter's preaching the gospel, he starts off by saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, a man sent to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, as you yourselves know. 
And it's interesting, as we've been studying John's gospels, or gospel, we've noticed that all in the other gospels, Jesus has done so many miracles that his enemies don't even try to say he's a liar. He, he doesn't really do miracles. He, 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 he's a trickster. They, they accept them and they rather attack where his power comes from. A true thing that his miracles come from the devil, not from God. Right? Jesus didn't do miracles hidden somewhere where there wasn't people seeing it. He performed so many miracles where John says at the end of his gospel, if they were written, in, not all the books in the world could not contain the miracles that Jesus did. So Jesus performed many miracles. Again, even his enemies could not deny or take that from him, that he was doing supernatural signs and wonders. Jesus uses his miracles as a second witness that he is sent from God and that everything he does is in complete harmony with what the Father wants. As Jesus heals people, the miracles he does, the signs that he does, everything, he, how he acts and loves, everything he does is accomplishing the work of God. Witness number three, the next verse, Jesus calls God the Father to take the stand as a witness. Now backtracking to verse 32, he says, there is another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And now to verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. But you, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. More important than man's testimony, than John the Baptist's testimony, Jesus' next witness is God, the Father himself. Now, as we read through the Gospels, there are two times where we have God the Father verbally testifying about God the Son while Jesus is here on earth. We see it at Jesus' baptism, and we see it at Jesus' transfiguration. God says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, there's a little added part where it says, listen to him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To him. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like, you can. You can write it down. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 1, the author starts with this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, in verse 37, reminds the Jewish leaders that they receive God's law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, right? Moses' writings on Mount Sinai without even hearing or seeing God. Moses acts as their mediator between the people and God. But then Jesus now gives them this strong rebuke in verse 38. He says to the leaders here who are wanting to kill him, this is what he says to them, you do not have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, Jesus is making and continues to make the claim of equality with God. He's saying, if you reject me, you're rejecting God. If you reject my word, you reject God's word. 
Why? Because God sent me. Jesus says, I am doing His perfect will. Now, interestingly enough, <clears throat> right? God, God's perfect timing, as I'm studying the Trinity, as I'm studying the relationship of Jesus' claims as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, Stephanie and I had a youth group student at our house on Friday. And during youth group, we're watching a movie, but during youth group, we had a theological conversation. This is a student who's a little older. He just graduated. And haven't seen him in a few weeks. And he revealed to me that he's been flirting with, with Islam. He's been saying, yeah, I've been going to the, the mosque near my house just to check them out. And, you know, because it's interesting because the, the Christian God and the Jewish God and the Islam God, you know, there's a lot of similarities there. And, and they all stem from, from, from Old Testament and, and God. And, and I'm, I'm listening, right, to, to see what he's saying and to, 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 to the words he's using. And I told him flat out, I said, if you reject Jesus' divinity which is what Islam does, they reject that Jesus is God, I said to him, we do not worship the same God as them. Right? You better be very clear on that. It's not the same God. If they're rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God. And that's a huge difference between Christianity and Islam. And I said that to him, and we had a good conversation. He's like, yeah, I know, but like, it's just interesting. because this is a... I said, listen, when it comes down to it, very simplistic, if you believe Allah... If you believe in the Islam God, you're rejecting the Christian God. You're rejecting Jesus' words. And it's interesting because I'm, I literally have just been studying his words, Jesus' claims. And we had good conversation, and we'll continue to have good conversations. But I did tell him, you better be careful because you're flirting with heresy. right? You're putting yourself in danger. It's not the same God. They reject Jesus as God. They just think he's a prophet. Moving on. There's a lot more I could say, but I'll move on. Witness number four takes the stand. The Scriptures. The Scriptures. Verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is the, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the only God? Now, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, to give them a little bit of, of justice, they did cling to the Scriptures. They studied every word of it. They memorized every word of it. They even revered it as the actual words of God. We can give them credit where credit is due. They had a high value of the Old Testament. Yet, they still missed who the Scriptures testify about. Jesus Christ. They were obsessed with finding the answer for how to obtain eternal life. Throughout Gospels and the Gospels and conversations, we see people ask Jesus, how do I get eternal life? The Jews were obsessed with finding it to try to unlock the secrets of it through Scripture. You have the story of the young rich ruler who comes to Jesus. He goes to him, he kneels before Jesus and says, how do I get eternal life? How do I obtain it? How do, how do I grasp it? 
Right? He's asking him, how? You have Nicodemus, who in a sense, in, in my tri- you know, paraphrasing, he's saying to Jesus, how do I become born again? How, how can I see the kingdom of God? How do I get eternal life? In John chapter 6, and we'll get there next week. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000. Right? He, he does a mighty miracle. And the next day, the crowd is looking for him. The next day, they're still wanting to follow him. And they seek him out. And then through Jesus' words, the crowd leave him. In John 6, verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, these were the crowds that Jesus had. I would argue these were not true disciples, followers of Christ. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? A lot of times, preachers, we like to pick on Peter. Why? Because he's the most relatable disciple, follower of Jesus. And, you know, most, most of us can probably relate to him. He does pretty crazy things. He speaks before thinking. But let's give him credit here. He got it right. Jesus, your words contain life, eternal life. Rather than reading the Scriptures as a means to know God, the Jews in Jesus' day, they made the Scriptures, they made the law of God their God. They refused to listen to Jesus, to whom the one whom the Scriptures bear witness to. The Jews studied the Word of God, but they still missed the point. They knew the Scriptures, but didn't know them at the same time. Sounds like a contradiction, sounds like a little bit of a paradox. Right? You can see something, but at the same time, still miss it, still not see it. I have a little game. Can everybody close your eyes if you like to play this game? Just close your eyes, no peeking. All right, you're allowed to shout out your answers. I'm giving you permission to, to yell at me. Well, not yell at me, but yell out your answers. What color shirt am I wearing? Don't look. Good, okay. All right, you're, you're seeing me. That's great. There are two banners behind me on the stage. What does one of them say? Okay, I'll, yes, all right. Did you put that up there? Next question. How many bay windows are there to your right on the piano side of the sanctuary? Five, okay. Last question. How many pews are there? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't count them, so I don't know. You could, you could open up your eyes. Right? Most of us have been here for years. Honestly speaking, I've been here my whole life. I grew up probably crawling, running, and, and staining these carpets and doing things, and running around the nurseries. Most of you probably babysat me. I've been in this church my whole life. Some of us have been here for 60 years. But some of us have a hard time answering these questions. Why? Because our focus is off. Right? You can see something, but at the same time, still not see it. It's, it's a matter of shifting your focus. Now, hopefully you don't come to church. Hopefully we don't come to church to study the windows, to study the pews, to count the pencils, to count the lights, to see, you know, to see outside, to, to look at everything on the walls. Hopefully that's not why we come to church. For the Jews, right, their focus was off. It was wrong. Let me explain. In these, first, in these verses we read, verse 41 to 44, right, the scriptures, Jesus sets up a comparison 
that they will refuse to listen to his words because of their pride and their self-righteousness. Jesus says he's come to do the will of his Father, to come to promote God, not promote his own glory, but to promote God, to fulfill the spiritual promises of God. And then he says, but you'll receive an other false messiahs. They'll come in to promote themselves and their, 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 their own egos. It's believed that after Jesus' ministry, after he dies and, and rises again and ascends up to heaven, there were 63 individual people who claimed some sort of messianic revelation that they were the Messiah. And those false messiahs, they did attract followers. Why? Because they offered easy victories, political power, materialistic goods, things, glory. They received glory from the people. Why? Because they offered things to the people. Meanwhile, Jesus, our Savior, offers us a cross. He offers us to die to self. And in verse 44, this is the heart of the question Jesus asks these leaders. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The Pharisees' focus was on themselves. Their own pride, receiving glory from each other, from the people, gaining reputation and reverence. Jesus, in a sense, asks them, how can I be glorified as your Lord when you're too busy seeking glory for yourself. And now the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they did dress a certain way. So you knew exactly who the Pharisees were. They set themselves apart by what they looked like. They often prayed out loud in public. Now there's nothing wrong with that, but the bigger question is why did they do it? It wasn't humble or out of humility, but rather to feed their own pride and to feed their ego, to brag about themselves, to have others say, wow, look at how eloquently and beautifully that they pray. They love to sit in the front seats of the synagogue. Right? Nothing wrong with it, but why? To be seen. Right? Usually the good students sit up forward. I'm not, not saying anything about the people sitting in the back. I'm just saying in schools, right? usually the people in the back tend to not listen as well, but that's not true here. But they sit in the front row. Why? Because they're receiving glory and praise. Oh, look at They're there. Wow, look how good they are. They loved the power and status that they had under the Roman rule, under the Roman government. Again, as, as we look at their pride and even what Jesus says about them, pride is deadly. Pride is deadly. Humans, we, we love to be loved. We love to be wanted. If we're honest for, for one second, be honest with me, not all the time, but from time to time, we do like to receive credit when we do something. Right? It makes us feel good. It makes us feel loved. Like, like, wow, look how good I am. Yes, I'm needed. We do like to be recognized, but there's a but here. But pride blinds us to the deadly reality of sin. There's a preacher that put it this way, so long as man measures himself against his family, man, he will be well content. In my own words, if you compare yourselves with others, you'll always find people that are worse than you so that you look better. Right? We can always justify our goodness when we compare ourselves with other people. But once we compare ourselves with Jesus, with his word, we don't good. Right? Before God, we're all sinners who will never be good enough to earn God's love. 
The cross reminds us that all who of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that we're given eternal life on the goodness, on the love, on the mercy of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. We see the grace and the forgiveness of God at the cross. We see the penalty of sin being paid by Jesus, and it's by His righteousness, His sinless life, His spotless sacrifice as the perfect Lamb of God that the Bible says we're made whiter than snow. We're dressed in His robes of righteousness. There's no good deeds or or anything good that we can do that can earn us salvation. We're saved through Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. That's the gospel message. The fifth and final witness, Jesus now calls Moses to take the stand. Verse 45, Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Something interesting that I learned this week is that the Jews oftentimes in Jesus' day, they set their hope on Moses. Right? Moses, while in the Old Testament in history, when he was alive, he acted as the mediator between God and the nation of Israel. He stood in between them. But Israel, in Jesus' time, the Jews believed that he continued to act as their mediator and advocate to God. I, I didn't know this. Right? Most of them believed he continued this after he died. And Jesus is basically telling them this. Your greatest advocate in your mind, the one who all your hope is set on, Moses, is actually your biggest accuser. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you think because you have Moses to be your mediator, you're safe? Moses is the one who will condemn you. Why? Verse 46, because he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because Moses wrote of me. Right? So in a sense, Moses the lawgiver would accuse the Jews because as the lawgiver, as the one who received and advocated and, and stood between Israel and God, Moses knew the law's true purpose. The law served to point to Christ. It reveals our sinful nature. The law never saves us from the penalty. It never justifies. Rather, it reveals our need for God's grace daily. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses commands, or he says basically that the law was given to be our witness against our sin. In other words, the law stands to show us we're condemned, to show us that we need a Savior. We need one to come and to fulfill it. And as I'm reading through this, and we'll continue to see rejection of Jesus, but for these religious leaders, why didn't they believe Jesus after Jesus just called five witnesses to take the stand to reveal his claim that he is God? Well, through these verses we read, the first is that these leaders were unwilling. They were unwilling to listen to Jesus. Their belief in Jesus, or lack of belief, I should say, in Jesus, was not an intellectual knowledge problem, rather a heart problem. Right? Jesus clashed against the will, the desire of their heart. It's not like Jesus just had to reveal a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more evidence, and oh, now we believe you because you gave us all the proof and evidence we need. 
it says in verses 40 to 43, they're unwilling to receive Jesus' words. And then in, in 43 and 44, the second reason is their pride. Or they're, they were proud. Pride flooded their hearts and their egos. They loved to receive glory from man. And let me just say this, as we share the gospel, it's important for us to understand that we might come against people like these leaders, like these Pharisees. And what I mean by that is no amount of biblical evidence or biblical knowledge that we present will be enough to convince them. The issue is that they don't care. They love their sin. And the same is true about prideful people. Right? They're so blind and convinced of their own goodness that they don't need a Savior. Right? They'll say, well, I'm glad Jesus died for the sins of those that, that needed him, but I don't need him. I'm, I'm okay. I, I, he, you know, it was a nice thing to do, but I didn't need it. Right? In either one of these cases, let me encourage us, it's important for us to still share the gospel. But understand, and I love this quote, and I said before, no one has ever been argued into God's kingdom. And what I mean by that is through yelling, through arguing, through clashing with people, no one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Their hearts need to be softened by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus. Now, there are some people who genuinely will sit and listen, who will ask good questions, but there are going to be those who love to argue and love to fight and will love to make you look like a fool and to trip you up. The reality is both need the gospel. But it's important for us as Christians, as we share the gospel, as we evangelize, to recognize how far to take the conversation. The Holy Spirit, I truly believe the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and discernment to us as we share the gospel. Right? Maybe there's people who need to understand, hey, you're a sinner. And maybe the gospel conversation harps on that individual single truth that you are not good, that you need a Savior, one who is good to save you. On the flip side, maybe there's one who, hey, I don't really know about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. Right? So it matters to know, not that it changes the gospel message, but rather how far to take it and what to focus on. And I truly believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll give us discernment and wisdom when we do that. The third point is this, and it's not so much a point, so don't think, okay, here's another five minutes. It's more so the ending. Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ is our mediator. While I was studying and, and researching and, and, and just praying through these verses, I noticed something that I think is worth pointing out. If you go to John 5 and, and stay in these verses, verse 34, we that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In those verses, Jesus reveals the way to be saved. Now go to the verse before that, verse, 40, uh, verse 33. Sorry, He says, you sent to John and he's borne witness to the truth. Jesus reveals he's the truth. Jump to verse 40. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is the giver of life. If you put those three key words together, and hopefully you, you, you saw the puzzle pieces here, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have forgiveness of our sins, that we have redemption, that we have eternal life. Our hope is in Him as our Lord and as our Savior, as our God. 
He alone is our mediator. He is our God. Let's pray. God, we thank You for our time here together this morning. We thank You for Your Word and the encouragement that we can see in it. That we can be reminded, Jesus, that You are the way, that You are the truth, and that You are the life. That we have a God who came and pursued us. A God who dwelt and tabernacled among us for 33 years. A God who came and died on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus, we praise You as not only our Lord and our Savior, but also our God. We thank You for loving us. We thank You for showing us Your love. As I mentioned before, You knew that You'd be rejected. You knew You'd be spit on. You knew You'd be nailed to a tree. Yet You still came in love, grace, and mercy. I pray, Lord, that as we go out, that we can remember the Gospel that it will empower us to go out and share the good news of who you are, Jesus, to everybody that we meet, to everybody that we see. I pray, Lord, that people can look at us, and even just based on how we treat others, how we talk about others, they can notice a difference. They can see the gospel transform our lives and how we treat them. Lord, I pray for wisdom and discernment as we talk to people, that through your Holy Spirit, that he'll guide us and direct us, in your truth. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you give us life. And it's in your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.